Hello, you're listening to The Booking Club, the podcast that brings you today's leading authors and commentators from a table at their favorite places to eat and drink. I'm your host, Jack Aldane. On this episode, I'm going to be speaking to Leroy Logan, former superintendent at the Metropolitan Police and author of Closing Ranks, My Life as a Cop. Yum Yum in Stoke Newington, capacious Thai restaurant, lots of people slowly gathering and uh, I'm sat with former superintendent, first chair of the Black Police Association and author of Closing Ranks, My Life as a Cop, a book that was published in 2020, Leroy Logan. Leroy, thank you very much for joining me this evening, how are you? That's my pleasure, Mrs. Chow G here. Mrs. Yeah, Chow G just she's walked she's by. Hello, so, you know, it's, it's like family here. First time I came to Yum Yum, mm-hmm. it used to be a small restaurant around the corner in Church Street, and uh, that was in the 90s when I was a sergeant here in um, Hackney, and then um, they moved here just before the Olympic Games uh, in 2012, and uh, yeah, I, I, I think this building used to be a court, actually. It's very spatial, um, it's very, um, I love the vibe, and because the connections with Atik, who I've known for many years, going back from school days... I went to, I was in the same class as one of his cousins. So, you know, it, it goes, it's got a lot of connections. Ati Chowdhury, the husband of Mrs. Chowdhury, who just walked by and an old school friend, as you say. Do you remember when you first met Ati at school? No, actually, he was a few years younger than me. You know, we, we met, you know, just youngsters in Highbury Grove School in Islington, where I grew up. In fact, the first scene of the Small Axe film is little Leroy being stopped outside after band practice and uh, the officers searched my trumpet case to find something more than a trumpet. Unfortunately, they only found a trumpet. But um, yeah, Hybergrove was uh, a big feature of my life. And, uh, you know, Atik is associated with that. And then so it was great when I finally got into policing and Hackney was my uh, second posting as a sergeant and having that reconnection. It, again, it gave me that grounding with the community and uh, the way he was very positive about the role of police in you know the Stoke Newton not just the the restaurant business or the nightlife but also the um the you know the wider wider cohesion piece and and you know he, he's great at giving back wanting to help you know the voluntary sector and so forth so you know that, that tied in with me as well and that's that's what really what fostered the, the, the friendship even more. So much of what you've just said hits on points that come up again and again throughout the book, getting really stuck into community bonding. You dropped a reference there to Small Axe. We'll bring that up in a moment, but here he is. Oh, yeah. The owner, Mr. Chowdhury. <laughs> Have a seat and talk through the menu. Leroy knows the menu inside out. On the menu is uh, Imagination, uh, <laughs> followed by uh, <laughs> all the other music we used to listen to yeah, at yeah, school, yeah, yeah. isn't it? High Imagination, the band of uh, Lee John, yeah, who Lee you're John. going on to see later on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, we all, yeah oh, Lee went to school as well. I yeah, see. Yeah. The restaurant's been going 30 years this year. So I've had a restaurant in Stoke Newington. I started 40, 1980, so it's 42 years ago. But Yum Yums, which is the, our classical Thai restaurant, in Stoke Newington, it's on Stoke Newington High Street, and the best dishes to have here. I mean, Leroy, he loves the uh, lamb and peanut butter curry. He just goes mad with that. It's um, uh, spring lamb, 
cooked with a, a red curry paste with Thai herbs um, and slowly stewed with potatoes and pumpkin. And when you actually stew it, it just falls off the bone. And this is a part of a, a sort of a comfort dish. And you have that with a pineapple fried rice. Amazing taste. If you love fish, we've got our uh, fish with a three flavored sauce, which is with garlic, tamarind and chili. And it's a whole red sea bream. So what we do is we put in a batter and we fry this fish and create this most amazing sauce to go on top. And then we chop some coriander and basically you get the softness of the fish itself, the crispy shell, and you get the tamarind, garlic and chili, which is equally, these three tastes have to be basically even so that you get the whole texture and the flavor. I'm bowled over by this. What were his packed lunches like at school? <laughs> I'll tell you what happened to me. My old school, which was uh, in Brookmans Park, I mean, I was a monitor, which is not the captain, but the second in charge. You know, every monitor and captain had a responsibility. So they decided, look, what responsibility do you want? So I said, look, and I saw the school tuck shop and I said, you know what? I wouldn't mind actually operating the school tuck shop. But uh, months later, the headmaster pulled me up and said, uh, Chowdhury boy, we do not consider wagon wheels and bovril crisps we substantial <laughs> diets for our children. So could you curtail your business in the school tuck shop because it's taking the dinner tickets away from the school canteen? The fact that you mentioned right off the top the lamb and peanut butter, which it sounds like is a personal favorite of yours, Leroy. Yeah, yeah. I think I will go for that. I'm going to get you a salt and pepper squid to start off with and some grilled king prawns. And yeah. that's served with our homemade peanut sauce and the salt pepper squid will be with our homemade sweet chili sauce. So you get a little bit of combination there. This is excellent. Thank you so much. All right, so I thought we would start with some difficult home truths. Let's get into it. In 2020, a 15-year-old black schoolgirl in Hackney was strip-searched by two police officers after being wrongly suspected of carrying cannabis. She was taken out of class, taken into the girls' toilets, and asked to remove her sanitary towel to prove that she was not hiding cannabis. That same year, a Metropolitan Police officer whose name will by now be familiar, Wayne Cousins, abducted and murdered a 33-year-old woman, Sarah Everard, whilst serving. This year, messages obtained from a WhatsApp group used by 17 police officers based in Charing Cross, nine of whom are still serving within the force, were found to contain jokes about rape, the disabled, the killing of black children, and violence towards women. After this emerged, the Mayor of London, City Khan, fired Cressida Dick from her post as the Met's Commissioner. There has yet to be a new Commissioner appointed. We don't seem to go more than six weeks in this country anymore without learning of a new shocking revelation about the Metropolitan Police's leadership, its personnel, its culture. So Leroy, what is failing so horribly for this to be the case? Let, let me say first, those, those scandals, and I call them scandals, are something that showing how toxic the, the culture of the, of the police has become. I would like to think it's still the minority, but how it's coming, uh, you, you actually missed out the um, Daniel Morgan case with institutional corruption. I knew I'd missed out yeah, several. Yeah. There have just there been so, so many. many. It's coming from so many places. I, I would like to think it's still the minority of officers that are not understanding their roles. In fact, they come into policing for the wrong reasons. Maybe it's a power trip. Um, it, you know, they're corrupt in one way. They're racist, homophobic misogynist, sexist, etc. But what is the real issue is the, the leadership. I mean, it was never perfect when I was in the Met. Um, we had our challenges, but I, I think the ethical leadership is, is definitely waned 
it, it, it's definitely tailing off because it seems like the scene officers are in denial. They're not willing to acknowledge there are faults because if you don't acknowledge there's a fault, you won't seek help. You won't want help. And, and then you, this tend to be this institutional defensiveness. You know, they close ranks at the expense of truth and justice. That's one of the reasons why I call my book Closing Ranks, because I saw it present itself so early, even before I joined the Met. So it, it's clear to me that that ethical leadership is, is lacking. The accountability and transparency that goes with that leadership, again, is reduced. And there is this definite systemic failures that they're not willing to acknowledge and as a result of that they seem to defend and get wedded to the culture Christina Dick is a, as a case in point she was so wedded to the culture she would never criticize it she couldn't recognize any of these failings and as a result of that that permeated right across the organization and some officers thinking well you know I'm untouchable I can do what I want and we are now seeing these cases coming up and I, and I, I would Unfortunately, it might be just the tip of the iceberg and there's more to come. You have a career as a cop that spans 30 years. You didn't join to make friends. You joined very much to challenge the status quo within that institution. And to a large extent, and we'll obviously talk about this, you succeeded. When you hear now about these new revelations, do you feel in any way desensitized? No, not at all. I'm disgusted. For 25 years, I was a supervisor of growing number of teams. And even when I was here as the superintendent and deputy borough commander here in Hackney, I was in charge of over 750 cops. And, and, and then I went on to the partnership teams and the safer neighbor teams and the um, safer schools officers. The, the key thing was you have to maintain a critical distance between you and your officers and your team. Because sometimes you have to be unpopular and tell them what they need to know, not what they would like to hear and how you have to develop them. And if they don't get developed, may have to sanction them or dispense with their services. The, the, the issue about Wayne Cousins, Wayne Cousins was known as rapey in his team. He had four counts of indecent yeah, exposure exactly. against him. And, and, and he's facing that, those charges now. But they, it seemed like that the environment allowed it. It seemed like it was acceptable. The, the norms and values had slumped that you can call someone rape because you know they've got those tendencies and no one picked it up. And you think to yourself, what's the sergeants and uh, inspectors doing? If they know their teams, they should be picking that up. I mean, he should have been in a, in a, in a Met in the first place if they'd done the betting. And another four or five um, years in that unit, over 20 officers had been linked with sexual offences. So it, it, it seems like certain units, just like Operation Hutton and the Charing Cross scandal, Again, it just seemed to be a safe haven for these t terribly disgusting thoughts and views and behavior. And you think to yourself, how has the culture slipped that far? And, and, and I think it plays itself out in how officers deliver the service and, and doing critical things like stop and search. And it was quite clear how child Q was dealt with. There is no way those officers should have searched it any more than our outer clothing, even though smelling of cannabis is, is not reasonable grounds in itself. And the staff had already given them an understanding that they'd already searched her. So to search our outer clothing, that was a no-no, much less going to a strip search and an intimate search is so graphic and disgusting, passing so many taboos. You know, I'm a father of a daughter, I'm a grandfather of two beautiful girls. And the thought that these officers could do that 
especially in a school where it's supposed to be safe and the, the teachers allowed the officers to go into another room and do this outside their presence of hearing and no guardians, no parents, no appropriate adults, nothing. Beggars believe. And I just, I, I used to think there's nothing bad about the Met that can't be corrected by what's good in it. I'm just wondering if that's still the case. I'm really wondering if the tipping point has passed um, and the road cops outnumbering the good cops. What has Atik uh, served us here? These are the starters. Well, um, salt and pepper squid, um, chicken and um, prawns to skewer. That's right. And peanut sauce. So, it, I, I mean, to be honest, it, it, everything looks lovely. And then, of course, we've got the prawn crackers um, with the um, sweet chilli sauce with it. So you alluded to it earlier, Small Axe. Listeners who may not have read the book may know you better as the young cop played by John Boyega in Red, White and Blue, directed by Steve McQueen. It goes without saying that everything that happens in that story you lived firsthand but what did you feel when you watched for the first time those pivotal moments in your career in your life really being retold so powerfully on screen it was so surreal the time when it really hit me that this was going to happen because there were so many stop start stop starts because i first met steve mcqueen in 2016 and i was involved in the scripts and pre-production work and um it really hit me when I saw John Boyega in uniform on the set. He was just incredible. Swept yeah. it. Absolutely swept it. Yeah. Amazing young man. And um, he, he um, obviously had done his homework and he just played it so well. And I, and I must admit, um, you, know, you, didn't, you know when people say, oh, I wonder who would play me if I had a film. Well, now I don't have to have that conversation. <laughs> you know, I've, I've, it's happened. And I couldn't think of anyone better. Um, he really did it for me and I think the other thing that really jumped out at me was those silent moments those silent moments when John would look, first time he looked at his uniform or first time he looked at himself in uniform or when he was on uh, his uh, unit when it, especially when it, he was in the locker room and he's yes. looking up and he's thinking what have I done you know and I didn't realize I had those silent moments um, it, it, it j hit me really like a sledgehammer I thought wow I, I, I just didn't know because I'm in the journey and I'm, I'm getting and you know I, I need to have that resilience my family my faith uh, the community were part of that anchor to, to keep me strong and to stand up you know and then obviously when we set up the BPA you know obviously that was part of the film but you know it, 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 those are sort of anchors I needed uh, to stay clear to my principles and values Let's get into the scene where your father encounters the two police officers on his lunch break, the moment that triggered the decision to join the Metropolitan Police. If I was there when my dad got beaten up, I thought I would have laid, run into them. But the thing for me was, it was local, just around the corner from where we live. You know, he was in his late 50s. He's not a person who is a troublemaker. He's never, he hasn't got any sort of... Um, convictions for violence or anything like that and you know it, it was clear to me that he was brutalized over traffic matter and 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 you, you thought to yourself wow what has he done to deserve that he's essentially told that his van was parked too said, far into the road yeah that's right and they said it was causing obstruction and he was challenging that and, and they really just laid into him so when i saw that in the film you know it brought back such vivid memories of you know particularly in the hospital i imagine oh yeah yeah 
Oh yeah, when I saw him, unrecognizable, and I walked past him. I didn't realize he 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 was um that was oh my dad um <clears throat> so you know and and uh, I I smelled and I sensed hate in a way that I'd never sensed it and I thank God I've never sensed it since and and one of the things that I realized that I I can either turn this around to be a force for good or I'm going to be such a anti-authority person that it could create a vengeance type of mindset and I couldn't allow that to happen and it going into the lion's den was the way to channel it so when you first joined the Metropolitan Police you talked about your training at Hendon the fact that you were about eight years older than most of your peers the sense in which you knew you were going into a hostile environment and one of the things that you did out of a sense of self-preservation, but also just a work ethic, was to take to your feet on the streets. You preferred not to travel by car. You wanted to be on the ground, street side, talking to people face to face. The streets, as you say in the book, were your sanctuary. Could you tell us a little bit about how your style of policing led to your eventual calling to become the chair of the Black Police Association? Yeah. Well, I think I was really fortunate that my first division as they were then it wasn't the whole borough it was part of Islington so the southern division was called King's Cross Islington and King's Cross that southern part of Islington I knew like the back of my hand you know I I, I realised that I could be self-reliant I realised excellence was the best deterrent against the racists and the other personalities whatever their preferences were and I didn't have to rely on advocates for, well, don't rock the boat, you do what you're told. You know, I remember when they, most people say, I'm not going up there, you know, to get a suspect. I'll be up there, get the suspect. Fortunately, on one occasion, I fell through a roof and all that sort of stuff. But they had grudging respect for me. Again, I knew more about that area than them. Because a lot of them didn't grow up there. A lot of them didn't even grow up in London. Yeah, one of the pivotal moments before you joined the police force was not just the story of your father, but getting chased through Hackney by a man who wanted to yeah. beat you up. Being streetwise, I think, is critical. I, I mean, it's like me going up to Merseyside and trying to do policing up there. It would take me years before I'd get a sense of being as streetwise as I would like to be. You know, really in tune with it. Whereas Islington, my first division gave me that sense of, I can do this. And not to be over-arrogant, healthy arrogance, I would like to think. And as a result of that, I had uh, the best turnover work and, and not being out of my way to get a conviction. I mean, it was, all right, if you're guilty, fine. Here you are, here's the evidence, go to court, whatever. I, I, I didn't have to coerce people or in, in any way, try and manipulate the system. Um, and having a wife and kid, you said, also helped you through your training. That and your Christian faith, which came a bit later on, didn't it? But that shaped you very much as a leader. So when it came to becoming the first chair of the Black Police Association, then how did you sense that this was something you had to do? Well, I came from a, uh, a God-fearing household. My parents went to church. They taught me well about rights and wrongs, the you know, the uh, commandments and all that and what it meant practically. So going in policing, I knew I couldn't just acquiesce and see things are wrong and ignore it. I had to step up and I would do that 
before, even before we set up the Black Police Association, which can be quite isolating. But once we um, had the founder member meeting through a whole sequence of events, um, it was clear that we were all singing for the same hymn sheet. We were all on the same page. And um, the, the formation in 94 came literally no, about six months before I had a, a, a real dramatic change in my life because I, you know, I was in policing, I was physically fit and everything. I, and through uh, an operational matter, I broke my ankle, um, chasing down a, a crack dealer suspect. And um, not one of your best arrests. No, 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 no. I'd like to know what your best arrest was, actually. I, actually, my, my best arrest was, um, I was, I was part of a, a murder team for the Stockholm Strangler. And Erskine was that uh, serial killer. And just being part of that murder team. Uh, and, and I had to do inquiries down in South London, Brixton, um, in, in that sa- southwest London area where he came from. Yeah, the Stockwell Strangler, like something out of a Victorian horror. Really, oh, no, it? I know. He's, uh, and also the Damanola Taylor uh, case. Even though I didn't arrest the suspects themselves, but being part of that team and knowing how I brought them in to assist the homicide team uh, and break down the wall of silence, I think that, that for me. So I, I don't actually have to have the, say, oh, I brought them into the custody suite. Just being part of that team and know I had an influence on that. Going back to the BPA, um, we, we, we realized that we had to make a difference and not just self-serving. We had to make a difference for the black community as well. So, you know, changing the culture, improving the, the, the dynamics of, of um, within the organization, especially after we gave evidence at the first inquiry to said the Met Police were institutionally racist. It was quite clear that that had an, an assistance to help the black community. Uh, especially working with the Lawrence family. So for me, my faith, knowing that God was in charge and, I, and it was going to be, you know, I, I wasn't going into it alone. I, I had all my guardian angels, you know, and I had prayers from the community. You know, once I declared my faith and, and more importantly, when I, I wrote the book, because that's a spiritual journey, people really identified with it and not necessarily Christians, people of all faiths and, and no faith. Uh, and, and so for me, it, it was talking it real of what is driving me. It's not because I want to have vengeance because as a Christian, you don't have a vengeful heart. You have a loving heart. And, you know, a lot of the times I will kill you with kindness. I don't want to, you know, eliminate you and your views. I want to, us to come together whether it's in the community, with my colleagues, and, you know, with, with the politicians. One word that comes up again and again in relation to this throughout the book is loyalty. Where do your loyalties lie? What has your career taught you about loyalty? Does loyalty only serve a limited set of personal or interpersonal interests, or can it serve a higher purpose? My loyalty is to the God that I serve, and it shows out misplaced loyalties, so you don't allow yourself to get caught up in these um, doctrines and ideas. I exclude, because I know even the Christian faith can be exclusive and, and not bringing in people as they should. My, my, my faith is a relationship. Um, it has practical applications. It helps me to anticipate, be discerning. I have that sort of internal checks and balances to make, ensure I do things properly. It's serving the needs of the greater good and not allowing my personal agenda to get in the way. 
what you said there about loyalty, misplaced loyalty, leads us through a nice segue onto the Sewell Report. It's been about a year since the Sewell Report came out. In the conclusion, the author's chief of which, Dr. Tony Sewell, writes, Most of us come from an older generation whose views were formed by growing up in the 1970s and 1980s, and our experience has taught us that you do not pass on the baton of progress by cleaving to a fatalistic account that insists nothing has changed. And nor do you move forward by importing bleak new theories about race that insist on accentuating our differences. It is closer contact, mutual understanding across ethnic groups, and a shared commitment to equal opportunities that has contributed to the progress we have made. Too many people in the progressive and anti-racism movements seem reluctant to acknowledge their own past achievements, and they offer solutions based on binary divides of the past which often misses the point of today's world. What do you say to that? Well, he's got a very, very polarised view. I, I, I know Tony years before the Saw Report. In fact, when I was superintendent, I got him to talk to um, some of our young people here. So... And I know his views around, he, he doesn't believe in systemic failures, institutional racism. Um, I don't think he's actually ever worked in a public service. That, that would help for him to see how it presents itself. His view is around, well, look at the mountain. Look, we're well up the mountain. Yeah, but we still got about another seven or eight twin peaks to deal with to get the equity and to get the justice and the accountability and transparency that is critical so that people will be judged on their merits and not because of their culture or their class or their ethnicity or, or colour, whatever. Because even now, we, we, the issues are not just about colour, it's on class, it's on gender, it, it's around faith. There are so many divides that the state allows in some way to perpetuate it. And he doesn't seem to recognise how the state fosters this on a regular basis just by the politics of it all in in closing i thought the recommendations were sound but the narrative which some of it you just read out at times was toxic and that's what disenfranchised so many people it created that division and, and, and a, a groundswell of opinion that said no that doesn't speak for us if tony sewell really been in public service for any significant amount of time, I think we'd have a different point of view. This question is from uh, another author, my last guest on the podcast, Elliot Ray. His question is, you've worked to fight racism from within the police system and from outside that system as well. Where do you feel you've had the most success? Um, I think outside the organisation, to some extent, people's recognising their rights and responsibilities, you know, through the our leadership program, which is a BTEC level two, so they get UCAS points at year nine before they go into the GCSEs. And so many of them said that was a light bulb moment in their life. I know some people say internally, well, what's really changed? Well, just having the McPherson Inquiry, we got the Race Relations Amendment Act. Tell us about the McPherson Inquiry and its influence. And again, when you mentioned earlier that worrying tipping point, whether or not you feel that the progress of the McPherson report is threatened, in a lot of ways, there's nothing that's threatened. It's actually been eroded at. Because when we got the, the 70 recommendations, the majority of which was for policing, but it had a wider societal issue. So it, it impacted on education, um, the, the wider justice system, the criminal, you know, crown prosecution service, etc. 
But in terms of policing, you know, you, you it changed the just practically the the casual racism or sexist comments went overnight, literally overnight. You didn't hear someone shouting the N word or the W word or the P word in the canteen or being derogatory to women. It just didn't happen. It just stopped. So that's when I knew when there, you know, especially the, the rogue cops are under the spotlight, they will, they will comply. They do what they're told. And I, I remember I coming here in 2004 as a superintendent, five years into McPherson. I, I, it was totally different to when I was a sergeant here in the 90s. You know, I speak to the constables, I speak to the police staff members, how things are different. You know, and that's why I always used to ensure I walked around the station, I walked around the borough, I cycled around because I, I want to hear from them. You know, I mean, one time, um, I'll never forget it, I was just down um, Shackleville Lane, not far from here, and Shackleville Lane used to be called the front line. It used to be like the drug line. It was the, um, it's the, uh, the, the, that Stoke Newington version or Hackney version of the front line in in Brixton. Wow, just outside this yeah. restaurant, right? Yeah, not far from here. Okay. And and, and um and I remember it was pouring out with rain and I was on the bike and someone who lived in here offered me an umbrella and I said, Well, really nice of you, but I can't cycle with an umbrella. Because a bad cop is a wet yeah, cop. It's a wet cop, yeah. And uh, and uh, for me that, that that said something about people understanding that police policing is a legitimate Thing and and you're there to serve them. Yes, and we have to have that servant lead, leadership to engage them. And you know, um, and I'm not trying to be idyllic, but I saw the data. And as a superintendent, I saw the data of what was happening when I was a sergeant in the 90s compared to what I was seeing as a superintendent in the early O's. Fortunately, austerity, this government's total different approach, and the fact that they, they eroded not only the numbers but the pain conditions so there's more stress less job satisfaction yeah, as you say morale is at an all-time low. Right? 20,000 police officers cut during the austerity absolutely and, and you know it's just so sad that the organization that i still love is, is so beleaguered and, and, and distraught because I, 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 a lot of ways i i think that this government has set them up you make a very good point public trust and public service it's an ecosystem it's yeah. uh, like you mentioned earlier you quoted robert peel yeah the public are police the police are the public you've got to have that contract if you don't have that contract you can't police police cannot police on their own so speaking about that tipping point looking up the mountain you sound hopeful what is your biggest source of hope i'm really starting to see the public coming together in a way that i haven't seen um, the protests of Child Q, for example, the walkout from schools. And, and Sarah Everard, all of these cases, you know, and, and people saying, well, listen, we demand to have a police service. And, and also, want, you know, even with the new commissioner, they want to influence how that takes place. Um, people are stepping up. Um, the, the National Police Chief Council, that represents all the chief constables, they've now got an independent um, scrutiny board. I think it's chaired by... Um, a lawyer, Abby is amazing. I think she can really do some changes. People are stepping up saying, we can't sit back and expect the change we want to see. We've got to be active. Whatever it, what it may be at the local level, regional level, national level, we've got to assist in making our streets safe. Because I think for years, too many people said, oh, it's just down to the police. No, it's an us. 
It's good to hear from you, Leroy. I'm glad that we've ended on that note. And I hope that certainly in my lifetime, the era of over-policed and under-protected will be a chapter we can close in this country when it comes to relations between police and citizens. You are heading off this evening to see a, a good friend of yours, a musician. Will you be getting up on stage, no, playing no, your no, trumpet, no, a bit of police and themes? <laughs> no, the only time I've been able to go on stage with him is that at my leaving do in 2013, you know, it was natural to have him as the band and um, I, went, I took the liberty of joining him on stage and a similar sort of thing at my paperback launch last year after COVID had eased, he, um, you know, I joined him on stage. So, you know, like a teak. Lee are long-standing school friends. They, 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 they made me who I am. I thoroughly enjoyed reading Closing Ranks. It's an incredible story. Thank you for telling it so honestly. No, no, it's been a, a real pleasure. I, I've really enjoyed your company. I, I like the fact that, you know, we can be just real with each other. And, I, I, you know, for me, breaking bread and fellowship is, is, is really important. And our desserts just turned up, so... We have here a banana fritter. And you see the bananas with a bit of batter... We put some uh, maple syrup on it. And if you just taste the coconut ice cream and then you see the flavors. And then we've got uh, this steamed chocolate pudding, a chocolate fondant, uh, which is made with 97% cacao with a homemade vanilla ice cream and served at our shell. Because my wife is a pastry chef herself. But this is a, a recipe from Katrina Johnson when she uh, left uh, Gordon Ramsay at Claridge's. She did a stint in, in Yum Yum. So this is her, one of her original uh, dessert recipes. Azzy Chowdhury, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much. You've done an incredible job of hosting. Leroy, thanks once again. Thanks for choosing me.